0: In preparation for reading this passage today, it made me realize this passage has been read and spoken for thousands of years in languages all around the world. What a privilege it is to come here and read this today. Scriptures from Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs, over the wide earth he will drink from the brook by the way and therefore he will lift up his head god bless the reading of his holy word
1: So we did some travel the last two weeks all across the mid-Atlantic and Southern United States. And we came across in Sevierville, Tennessee about five days ago, the world's largest gas station. 120 gas pumps, 74,000 square feet. It's called Bucky's. And guess where it started? Texas. Everything large comes from Texas. But these are, you're gonna start seeing more of these. Apparently, they're building more. It's only gonna be the world's largest gas station for about another month because they're building another one in Texas that's gonna be a little bit larger. But it's, who knew that a gas station could become a, a tourist attraction? But we found ourselves going miles out of the way to go visit Bucky's, the gas station. Because it does have the cheapest gas around, but it also has barbecue sandwiches you can buy inside. You can buy, um, you can buy pretty much anything you can think of. It's like a Walmart and a, and a gas station all in one. But the point is, it's hard to miss. It has a big beaver on the sign. It's Bucky. And uh, you see it from miles away. I think the closest sign we saw was from 80 miles away. They said, Bucky's coming up. World's largest gas station. So let that serve as your opposite introduction to Psalm 110. <laughs> Just as Bucky's is really impossible to miss and it kind of lives up to the fame, Psalm 110 is so important. Psalm 110 is so important in the Bible, and most of us probably don't even know it. It's hard to miss, or it's easy to miss. Just like Bucky's is hard to miss, Psalm 110 is somewhat easy to miss. It's just seven verses stuck right in the middle of the Bible. But Psalm 110 is perhaps the most important Old Testament text in the whole Bible. And that's not just my opinion. The reason why it may be the most important Old Testament text, and you may be saying at this time, why don't, should we read this again to make sure we under, if it's that important, maybe I should open up my ears a little bit again. But why is it the most important Old Testament text? It's because it's used and quoted more than any other Old Testament book by New Testament writers. So if you turn to the New Testament, you'll see Psalm 110 quoted more often than any other psalm. And it's pretty surprising, I would say. And so it's a big task for us this morning to really understand what is so important about Psalm 110 that made all these New Testament early church writers see it as so important for people to grasp and to understand. It's the psalm that is made memorable and was taught on um, more so than any other text by the early church. In fact, the first sermon of the church by Peter in Acts chapter 2 is pretty much based solely on Psalm 110. And we'll go through a lot of these texts today uh, as the sermon goes on. So I do encourage you, if you have your Bible with you, to keep it open and and handy with you, not just for Psalm 110, but also to be flipping around, because I'm going to lead us to a couple of different texts today that we're going to be reading through. But Psalm 110 is really important. So let's begin first by just acknowledging what Psalm 110 teaches. And that's actually just going to be the first part of this sermon. So we're going to spend the first part just learning about Psalm 110. And then we're going to move into how the New Testament writers use it, how they understood it. And then we're going to finish with why you should care about it today. And hopefully it'll be somewhat self-obvious by that point also. So let's go into first Psalm 110. What is it that it teaches and why is it so important? First, right from the very first verse, Psalm 110, verse one, we have to discover who the Lord is. Who is the Lord? And as you look at Psalm 110, you know, you have your bulletin insert or your Bible in front of you. You'll see right from the first line, there's two mentionings of the Lord, but there's a difference in these two Lords. The first Lord is all caps, capital L-O-R-D. The second Lord is lowercase. Who is the Lord? So the first one is, is self-obvious. The Lord, L-O-R-D, capitalized, is the Old Testament's, Israel, Israel's Old Testament name for God, Yahweh. So if you read that in the Hebrew, it's, the, it's very clearly the Hebrew word, Yahweh. So that is the Lord God, the God who made the heavens and the earth, the God who reveals himself to the nation of Israel, the God who who made the nation to be a light to the world. That's that's self-evident. It's God himself, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. Now, before we get into who the second mentioning of Lord is, we have to know who's writing this psalm. And you'll see there if it's in your in your Bible, it's not in the Bolton insert, but in your Bible, it says a psalm of David. So David is writing this psalm. David is the king of Israel, probably the most important king of Israel during all of Israel's history. He's writing this psalm and he says, the Lord, so God, the king of the universe, Israel's God, the covenant-making, promise-keeping God, the Lord says to my Lord. So the my is David. So the God of Israel says to David's Lord. Now, let's just pause there for a second. That may not mean much to you yet. But this is really important to see here that David is introducing a massive concept to the people of Israel. And the massive concept is this. There is someone who is not just the Lord and not just the king of Israel, David, but there's someone who is over the king of Israel who the Lord is talking to a third character in the story, lowercase L-O-R-D. Now the Hebrew word for, the, for Lord there is not Yahweh. The, the Hebrew word there is Adonai, which could be translated Lord as it is here. But for our common vernacular today, it could be more master or sovereign or one who is in authority so God Yahweh is talking to someone who is master over David which is if you're an Israelite reading this you're saying how could someone be above king David he is the king of Israel the one who's over all of us and yet David here right from the outset is acknowledging someone who is greater than him and so to understand this you kind of have to go back to the to when David was first being installed as king back in the book of 2nd Samuel. 2nd Samuel chapter 7, you read about these promises that are made to David. Promises that are going to outlast the reign of David's kingdom. The Lord in a vision comes and says to David that there is going to be one who comes from your throne, from your family to sit on your throne forever. 2nd Samuel chapter 7 is the promises of God to David to say that you're going to be king over Israel for a time a limited time just like every human and yet from your line from your bloodline from your family from your tribe is going to emerge one who will sit on the throne of Israel forever and his kingdom will have no end. And so if you're an Israelite you're in anticipation of a son of David coming, who is going to reign over Israel forever. Now, if you're, if you're reading the Psalms at this point, as David is a contemporary, you're waiting for who, who are they going to be the ones that are going to come later. But if you read the Bible like you and I do, you know, and you, we have a couple of thousand years worth of history, you can actually trace the line of David afterward. You see, David gave, he had a son named Solomon who came right after him, who built the grand temple of, of Israel. And so many people were looking to see maybe Solomon is the one who is going to reign forever. So Solomon built the temple, which is a wonderful thing. But even in those promises to David, the promises of God to David said, not only is someone going to build a house for me, for God, a temple. He said, but I'm actually going to build a house out of you that will reign forever and ever. So it actually outlasts Solomon, too. And then you go to Solomon's kids, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, and then the kingdom splits and Israel becomes like a lot of families in modern times and ancient times, one big divided mess. And that's the way it continues for the rest of the Old Testament, a divided kingdom, north and south. They begin to war against each other. and Then they're both eventually overtaken and the whole thing seems to be done. So where is David's son coming from? From the promises of God in Second Samuel 7. This Lord, the lowercase L-O-R-D, is the anticipated Savior, Messiah, Christ that the Israelites were longing for. That's what David is introducing to the people of Israel here. And from that emerge seven different promises of what this coming Lord or coming Messiah or coming Savior will be like. So let me just explain some of them somewhat briefly, and then we'll get into the implications for us. In verse 1, it says that, uh, he says, the Lord says to my Lord. So that's, that's all just introduction. The Lord says to my Lord. There's three characters involved here. He says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So the first promise here is that God himself, Yahweh, will defeat whoever this Savior is, all of his enemies. So this Messiah is going to have enemies, and God is going to defeat them for this coming Messiah. He invites the Messiah to sit at his right hand, which is an ultimate sign of authority. As, As one scholar said in ancient times, if you're a fully armed warrior, you'll have in your right hand your weapon, whether it's a spear or something or a sword, And in your left hand, you'll have a shield. And that's how you would fight. And so the person to the right hand of a king would have the privilege of defending the king. Because if the king would be here, you'd have the shield to defend. And so for a king to put someone there would be a huge affirmation of trust and honor. And so whoever this Lord is, is deeply trusted and honored by God himself, by Yahweh. And then it says I'm going to make your enemies your footstool. That's a great image for modern day Americans. We know exactly what a footstool is, right? I'm going to make your enemies your footstool. Just picture picture the savior his enemies are defeated and he's literally the image is like his his foot is on their neck. That's how much submission the enemies have to this messiah. He is in complete control. So the enemies actually have no chance at all. They are powerless because God has given them over to the Messiah. He is over them. So that's the first promise. The second promise, verse 2, is that he will be a king. And how do we know that? Because there's a scepter involved here. There's rule in the midst of enemies. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Meaning that the the king of the world, the king of the universe, God, is, is pointing forth his royal scepter, towards the Messiah and saying, you have the authority to rule in the midst of your enemies. You have kingly dominion over it all. The king represents God to the people. He is the sovereign. He's the one who's overall showing the kingly nature to the common people. He is, he is, he's going to be robed in royal splendor. He's the one who has, has God's, God's image on him to reflect to the people to show authority and rule. And it's coming from Zion, God's holy city. He has authority. The third promise, this one's pretty interesting, I think. Your people will offer themselves freely, meaning that this king doesn't have to convince people to follow him, they want to follow him. He is a king that you will freely offer yourselves to fight for, to fight alongside, to fight with not begrudgingly or under compulsion. They want to follow him because they seem to love him and what he stands for. And they're wearing holy garments. They're like, we're going to get dressed up and fight with you because we like what you're behind. We're going to offer ourselves freely. The fourth promise is it says, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. It's a little bit of an interesting phrase. Um, but most of us know what the dew of the morning is. You, know, you wake up in the morning this time of year and there's, there's the grass is wet until the sun comes and burns it off. But when you think about the dew of the morning, it's there to provide freshness and vitality to the grass, to the earth that just kind of comes mysteriously overnight. And so the promise here is that this Messiah will be full of life, full of vitality, just like the dew of the morning that comes mysteriously, fresh every morning so the Messiah will have life and vitality in him. He will not wear out or expire. He will last. Day by day, he'll wake up with this vitality and this life-giving energy and force that other people will feed off of, just like the grass feeds off the dew. In verse, uh, the second part of verse four, uh, I'm sorry, and and moving on to verse four, this is the the fifth um, promise God is not only going to be giving the Messiah a kingly role. This Messiah or coming one will have a priestly role as well. And this is where you get this beautiful introduction to this mysterious character of the Bible named Melchizedek, which a few of you have asked me about in the last few years. And I said, I know we're going to get there. And today is your day. Melchizedek is the day. But before we tell about Melchizedek, let me just explain about a priest again. Because you and I are living in a modern world that doesn't really have priests, at least in the way that Israel had them. You know, it's, even, it's different even than a Catholic understanding of a priest. But he says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What was, a, what was a priest in Old Testament Israelite times? The priest was someone who represented the people to God. So remember I said the king represented God to the people. A priest is someone who stood alongside the people and brought the people and their sins and their dependency to God. And so there was one man who was the high priest who came from the tribe of Levi, who would go into the Holy of Holies once a year and he would administer the temple, uh, all the sacrifices, but one day a year he would go and intercede for the people before God. And this priest is the one who alone could make atonement for people's sins. That's how they would do it back then. By offering animal sacrifices. And so this coming one will be not only a king, but also a priest, but not only a priest, but a specific type of priest, a priest like Melchizedek. So if you have, if you have a Bible in front of you, I'll invite you to turn all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 14. Genesis 14 is where we get the first and only mentioning of Melchizedek until this point. So if you're reading Psalm 110, you're saying, wait a second, Melchizedek? He's only been mentioned once, and it was way back at the beginning. Genesis 14, verse 17 and following. Let me read this for us. So it's talking about Abraham, who God has already promised to Abraham that he will make him the father of many nations, which eventually Israel comes from. But Abraham, it says in verse 17, After Abraham's return from the defeat of Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. And then in parentheses, it says, he was priest of God most high. Pause there for a second. Melchizedek is already he's introduced as two different things already. He's a king, he's the king of Salem, which eventually would be Jerusalem, Jerusalem, but he's the king of that and then it says he was also priest of God most high. Now before I say anything else more about Melchizedek, you need to know that for an Israelite person that would be unfathomable. The king and the priest could not be one person. They had to be two different offices. The king was the military ruler of the land. He protected the people. The priest was the one who would offer the sacrifices in the temple. They were never to be the same person. And yet here is maybe the only person in the whole Old Testament that had both at once. He was the king priest all in one. And look how Abraham treats him. It says, he blessed him and said, blessed be Abraham, Abram of God most high possessor of heaven and earth and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand and Abram gave him a tenth of everything so you ever wonder why preachers or churches say give a tenth of your of your money as an offering to God that's one of the places people look as a tenth or a tithe of your offering but Abraham here gives this freely to the king priest of Jerusalem as an act of reverence so Abram sees Melchizedek as quite the man of honor. Melchizedek is the priest king. And then and going back to Psalm 110 now, it says, This coming Messiah will be after the order of Melchizedek forever. He's in his line forever. Let me just give you two more quick promises and then I'll show you how the rest of the Bible uses this and how it applies to us. Verses 5 and 6. It says uh, that this Messiah will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. Verse 6, it says he will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. What an awful image. This, this coming one is going to rule the nations with such uh, totality that there will be bodies across all the nations from his enemies. And so he'll be, he'll be the ruler over the nations And in here, again, you have to kind of look through this, which is hard to do, but you have to look at this text through an Israel perspective of always being surrounded by enemies, always being under attack. And so for us, this feels like a brutal, murderous promise for an Israelite. This would have been seen as the only option for Israel of someone who's going to come and defeat our enemies so that we'll be safe. That's how they would have read this. But then I'll show you how the New Testament reads it in just a moment. The last promise, though, is verse 7, which is that the king, the Messiah here, will rule continually. He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. That's an image, uh, another Old Testament image that was used of, um, of David. When David was going out to fight some of his enemies, he was chasing some of his enemies into another land, and he was exhausted. And he, he cries out to God, God, should I continue after them? And God says, yes, I will give you the strength. This is from First Samuel 30. God says, yes, I will give you the strength. And so David came to a brook. And he's there with his big army. And it says some of the army stayed behind because they were so exhausted. But it said David continued over the brook. Assuming that he took a drink from the brook, as to, to get vitality and to get life, and then he continued on, and they went after the enemies and they won the war. And so when it says here that he drank he will drink from the brook, by the way, it's to say, similar to David, similar to previous military leaders, this Messiah will not stop at the brook and be too tired to continue on. He will continue. He will be victorious, and he will lift up his head, meaning he won't be exhausted and turn around, he will continue, and he will ultimately win. So that's Psalm 110. I could stop there, we could have a good teaching lesson, and that's the Bible study, and you could go home saying, that's great, but I don't really know what that means for me today. So for the last few minutes, I just wanna give a couple of short examples of why this is important for us, but to do so first, we have to see what Jesus says about this text. So turn to Matthew 22, if you have a moment. I'd like to read Matthew 22, verses 41 to 46. Matthew 22, 41 to 46. Just a little background to this. Jesus is in the midst of really being uh, relentlessly questioned by those who were doubting who he was, by the Pharisees, by the high priest, by the religious leaders. Just in chapter 22 alone, three different times, Jesus is confronted with a question. So verses 15 to 22, he's asked about politics and taxes, and they're asking what should we do? In verses 23 to to 33, he's asked about the resurrection. He's asked about marriage and divorce. And then verses 34 to 40, he's asked about what is the most important commandment? And with each of these questions, there's a hint of, trying to trap Jesus in his answer, trying to get Jesus to walk himself into a trap so that they can accuse him of being blasphemous or being a heretic. And Jesus just beautifully each time responds with a shrewd, kind, beautiful answer that turns the tables. But you can tell by the time he gets to verse 41, he's like, it's my turn to ask you a question now. And so in verse 41, it says this, Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? The Pharisees said to him, the son of David, because they knew the promises of God in 2 Samuel 7, that the Messiah would be the son of David, right? Jesus said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? Saying, quote from Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Jesus says, If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Silence in the room. Verse 46 No one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day forward did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Jesus here takes Psalm 110 and uses it in his most forceful response back to the Pharisees to say, you've been anticipating a Messiah, a Savior, a Christ who's going to come. And you've, you rightly say that he's the son of David. But might he be even more than a son of David? And he doesn't give the answer. He doesn't say here, it's me. But the implication is pretty clear here that the Christ, or the coming one, is more so than just the son of David, but it's certainly even going to be the Lord of David himself. He would be greater even than David. The Pharisees couldn't possibly think how to rebut that, so they just gave up asking questions. And so Jesus is saying the one you're looking for is not just the son of David. He's actually the Lord of lords himself. When Jesus was on the cross, just a couple of chapters later in Matthew 26, or going to the cross, the high priest is again questioning Jesus. And he just says, tell us plainly if you are the Christ. Are you the son of God? And Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. What's that a quote from? Psalm 110, seated at the right hand of God. Remember, he's the one who's defending God. He's the one fighting for God. Seated at his right hand. And at that moment, the high priest, his ears perk up. And he says, I recognize that from Psalm 110. And the high priest says, that is blasphemy. And that's when he sends Jesus to the cross. The high priest knew what Jesus was saying, knew knew what Jesus was assuming he was. He knew who, who he was saying, he was who he was claiming to be. And that was enough for him when he said, he's seated at the right hand of God. This is when they decided for sure that Jesus was applying to himself that he was the Messiah of Psalm 110. And so as you go through the rest of the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 15, Hebrews 1, Hebrews 4 and 5, Hebrews 10, 12, 1 Peter 3, And even to Ephesians 1, you see over and over and over New Testament Christians applying Psalm 110 to Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And saying, the one you've been anticipating from Psalm 110 is the one who died on the cross and the one who rose again. That is the unapologetic claim of the New Testament. Now, why does that matter to you and me today? Because it shows that Jesus, like Melchizedek, unlike any other person in the whole Bible, is not only the king, the one who rules over all things, who has sovereign dominion, who will fight for us, who will protect us from our enemies, the one who rules with splendor and power and authority. He's the king, but he's also the priest. He's also the one that intercedes for you. He's the one who goes into the holy of holies and applies blood as a sacrifice so that you might be scot-free from your sins forever. Except it's not the blood of an animal, it's his own blood. The substitute, the sacrifice for you. And Jesus is able to rule with authority as the king, while also humbly, gently, lovingly, alongside each of you being your priest. He's the priest king. He's the priest king of Psalm 110. And when you see Jesus as that way, as not just the sovereign and not just the one who substituted for you, but both at the same time, whenever you for yourself really truly understand that and see that, that's when conversion happens. That's when faith comes into your life. You know, faith, faith is a decision, but faith almost confronts you because you see something so beautiful and so uh, uncomparable to anything else that's offered in our world, that you say, if that's who Jesus is, the king priest, who's in control but also right alongside me in everything I go through, then you say, of course I'm going to follow him. Because who else is offering that? Only Jesus is offering that. You know, I listened to another pastor give a sermon on this text this week, and um, really helpful because they always seem to bring out things I miss, but um, they brought all the way back to Exodus 33, when Moses asked God to show him his glory. And the answer that God gives is a a partial answer. God says, I can't show you my full glory because you couldn't, you couldn't possibly take it. There'd be so much glory that it just wouldn't literally knock you out. But what God says, he says, I'm going to let my goodness pass before you which this pastor said, what an interesting way to put it. God said, I'm going to allow my goodness to pass before you. And then right after that experience, while Moses is hidden behind the cleft of a rock, God's goodness passes before him. And then it's after that, that God gives him his sovereign name. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins. Did you hear all the priestly language in that? But who will by no means clear the guilty, meaning he's the king, meaning he can't just let sin get away unpunished. And so the question throughout the Old Testament was, how can a forgiving God not be able to forgive in that moment? And then we get through Psalm 110, and then you see Jesus who doesn't let sin go unatoned for, but deals with it himself by bringing it on himself. That's what his goodness really means. The priest king shows the goodness of God. So just a couple of last things for you to take from this. If Jesus really is the priest king, then you have nothing to fear. That means you have one who is authoritative over you, yet who is right alongside you, sympathizing with your weakness and providing intercession for your sins. Jesus has all the evil and enemies defeated. He has Satan on the ground and his foot is on his neck. In fact, that's the image from Genesis 3 right from the beginning. When Satan comes and tempts Adam and Eve, God comes and and pronounces a curse on the serpent and says this. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. One of the first foreshadowings of the Messiah, meaning the serpent may nip at the heel of the Messiah killing him, perhaps. But ultimately, the Messiah is going to knock a decisive blow on the serpent's head, which if you've ever killed a snake, you know if you hit the head, the snake dies. Jesus is doing that to the evil of the world now. You have nothing to fear. The end is written. True life is offered to you in abundance in Jesus because if he is like the dew of the ground that will always be full... Always be fresh morning after morning. That means he has life overflowing to give to you through whatever you're gonna walk into. You don't have to be faint. God will give you strength day by day, no matter what you're walking through. John 1 says, in Jesus was life and that life was the light of men. And then lastly, if all this is true, which I'm saying it is, Jesus is the priest king. That means that each of you here this morning are a part of the most important community in the history of the world. And I'm not just talking about Salem, though you're the most important to me because I'm the pastor of this church, but you're a part of the most important global historical community in the history of the world, which is the church. Because remember that really negative image in Psalm 110 about, you know, the Messiah coming and spreading corpses all over the nations and how that kind of naturally repulses us? Well, The other way to look at that is that when Jesus comes and it says, Psalm 110 says that he spreads bodies all over the nations. In Ephesians chapter 1, when Jesus is being talked about by the Apostle Paul, let me read this directly for you because it's just so important. This is the last thing I'm going to mention, I promise. Um, In Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul is talking about who Jesus is. And it says this, talking about Jesus, it says he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. There's that image again, seated at the right hand, far above every rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in this age to come. He's put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all. And all. Psalm 110 said he's going to spread bodies all around these nations. And yet, Paul is saying, using the same images from Psalm 110, he's saying when Jesus came and died and rose again, he's spreading his body around the nations. And what is his body? You, the church. So he is spreading bodies across the nations, but they're not dead bodies, they're living bodies. The body of Christ itself, walking in love and in joy and in faithfulness and in self-control and all the fruits of the Spirit, showing the beauty of Jesus to a watching world. In Salem, in your neighborhoods, around the world, that's how God sends his saving message through the world, through you and I. Which means you're part of the most important community in the history of the world. Because the Messiah has you in mind to help spread his goodness to a needy world. So that's Psalm 110. And that's why it's used so much in the New Testament, because it is the fullness of the gospel anticipated and then so beautifully applied in the person of Christ. And so we gather and we look back to the thousand-year-old text that, that Donna introduced for us. And we say with gratitude, thanks be to God who has given us Jesus as the fulfillment of Psalm 110. He is the king and the priest. He's with us. We have nothing to fear. We are part of his plan right in the heart of it. Let us be glad. Let me close us in prayer and we'll sing a final song together. God, as we look at a text like Psalm 110, it's just, it's kind of impossible to get to the fullness of it. And, um. We're, we're glad to be alongside the company of the, of the church throughout the ages that just seems to always come back to this text and say, if that's really what you've done, God, then, then how could we ever say thank you enough? Um, you're not just the son of David. You're not just the son of man. You're not just the Messiah, but you are the Lord of Lords, as Revelation says. You are the one who has all things under your control. You are right in the Father's plan. And therefore, we should walk away from today uh, with a renewed confidence in whatever you're working in our life. You're working it for good because you are sovereignly and gently in control of all things. So I pray that each person here would experience that, would feel that, would understand that, and um, would give their life to you. Whatever that looks like for each person here.